welcome to Scarlet Tavern. Grab a drink, take a seat, and let's begin. As we delve deeper into the labyrinth of Jack the Ripper's Unsolved Saga, the plot thickens like London Fog. Part two of our podcast series peels back more layers, revealing the cryptic puzzle that continues to confound even the most seasoned investigators. Buckle up for another riveting journey into the dark corners of history. This is Scarlet Tavern, Mead, Murder, and More. Alright, we are back with part two of Jack the Ripper. Um, In this part, we are going to venture into the Canonical Five. This definitely has a warning on it. Um, All of our stuff, we go pretty in-depth, but Jack the Ripper did get pretty brutal, Um, and as you know, we don't leave anything out. So, not only is this a listener warning, this is trigger warnings, all of that kind of stuff. Um, if this bothers you, then you might want to go listen to the next episode when that comes out. Or go listen to one of our other episodes. All good episodes. Um, so, I guess, well, let's get started. Yeah. So, in the late 19th century, life for lower-class women in London was difficult. Many of them worked for meager wages as domestic servants or in sweatshops. Their daily wages often meant that they would have a place to sleep at night. Three or four pence would buy a bed in one of Whitechapel's many lodging houses. In desperation, women could turn to prostitution and certain streets of London's East End became notorious destinations for the sex trade, of which the Ripper victims had all been working at the time of their deaths. The substantial number of attacks against women in the East End during this time adds uncertainty to how many victims were murdered by the same individual. Eleven separate murders stretching from April 3rd, 1888 to February 13th, 1891 were included in a Metropolitan Police investigation and were known collectively in the police docket as the Whitechapel Murders. The violent deaths of these 11 women revealed the dangers facing lower-class women at the time. Opinions vary as to whether these murders should be linked to the same culprit. Of these murders, most experts agree that Jack the Ripper was responsible for the five murders that occurred from August through November 1888. Most experts point to the deep slash wounds to the throat, followed by extensive abdominal and genital area mutilation, the removal of internal organs, and progressive facial mutilations as the distinctive features of the Ripper's modus operandi, or M.O. The first two cases in the Whitechapel murders file, those of M.O. Elizabeth Smith and Martha Tabram, are not included in the canonical five. The series of killings that began in August 1888 stood out from other violent crimes at the time. They were marked by sadistic butchery, suggesting a mind more sociopathic and hateful than most citizens could comprehend. The first murder was Mary Ann Nichols, and that took place on August 31st. Annie Chapman was killed on September 8th, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were murdered September 30th, and Mary Jane Kelly on November 9th. These are often referred to as the canonical five Ripper murders, although Martha Tabram stabbed to death on August 6th, 1888, is considered by some Ripperologist, quote-unquote, to be the first victim. On 
September 28th, a letter was received at the Central News Agency signed Jack the Ripper threatening more murders. The name caught the public imagination when it first appeared in the newspapers and was used ever afterwards. Whitechapel is now an uproar riots broke it was an uproar. Riots broke out as hysterical crowds attacked anyone carrying a black bag as a rumor had spread that the Ripper carried his knives in such a bag. Another letter was received by the Central News Agency in which the Ripper said he was sorry he had not been able to send the ears to the police as he had promised. Catherine Meadows' left ear uh, had been partially severed. The murders of Stride and Oz became known as the Double Event. The horror of the double murder gripped London. Rumors now began to circulate the Ripper was a mad doctor, a Polish lunatic, a Russian Cesarist, and even an insane midwife. Oof. Um, Mary Jane Kelly is considered to be the Ripper's final victim, and it is assumed that the crimes ended because of the culprit's death, imprisonment, institutionalization, or emigration. The panic and public outcry caused by the murder of Mary Kelly led to the resignation of Sir Charles Warren, chief of police. Mary was the last of the Ripper's victims. His reign of terror ended as suddenly as it began. For a hundred years, various names have been suggested as the killer of these women. Each of the canonical five murders was perpetrated at night, on or close to a weekend, either at the end of the month or a week or so after. The mutilations became increasingly severe as the series of murders proceeded, except that of Stride, whose attacker may have been interrupted. Nichols was not missing any organs. Chapman's uterus and sections of her bladder and vagina were taken. Eddowes had her uterus and left kidney removed and her face mutilated, and Kelly's body was extensively eviscerated, with her face quote-unquote gashed in all directions, and the tissue of her neck being severed to the bone, although the heart was the sole organ missing from this crime scene. Historically, the belief that these five canonical murders were committed by the same perpetrators derived from contemporaneous documents which link them together to the exclusion of others. In 1894, Sir Melville McNaughton, Assistant Chief Constable of the Metropolitan Police Service and Head of the Criminal Investigation Department, authored a report that stated the Whitechapel murderer had five victims and five victims only. Similarly, the canonical five victims were linked together in a letter written by police surgeon Thomas Bond to Robert Anderson, head of the London CID, on November 10, 1888. Some researchers have posited that some of the murders were undoubtedly the work of a single killer, but an unknown larger number of killers acting independently were responsible for the other crimes. Authors Stuart P. Evans and Donald Rumblow argue that the canonical five as a ripper myth and that three cases Nichols, Chapman, and Eddowes can be linked to the same individual. Conversely, others suppose that the six murders between Tabram and Kelly were the work of a single killer. Dr. Percy Clark, assistant to the examining pathologist George Phillips, linked only three of the murders and thought that the others were perpetrated by quote-unquote weak-minded individuals induced to emulate the crime. McNaughton did not join the police force until the year after the murders, and his memorandum contained serious factual errors about subjects. Sounds like somebody was trying to jump, was gunning for a promotion or a recognition, and he just gave his not un, not 
on uh, what is it? I'm trying to think of his um, unsupported opinion. Like my 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 expert thinking. Yes, buddy. The guy who wasn't even here when it all went exactly. down. Yeah. How how can somebody who wasn't here did not study the case give an expert opinion? Well, as we said, as we already saw before, um, even people on the case were giving were not were giving their um, their opinions on things that probably shouldn't have had. Um, no one really asked for it, like uh, Tommy Bond over there. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Let's get into it. Oh, boy. Mary Ann Nichols. This is where <coughs> listener discretion is highly advised. Yes. Conventionally understood to be the first victim of Jack the Ripper's victims, Mary Ann Nichols was a native of London who had spent a good deal of the 1800s on the drift. She was the daughter of a blacksmith and spent much of her youth in various poor houses of the capital. Her marriage to a man named William Nichols had founded her had foundered after the birth of her sixth child. William's head had been irreversibly turned by a neighbor called Rosetta. Marianne was laying the roots of an inescapable addiction to alcohol. After being abandoned by her husband, she earned a living through workhouses, prostitution, and petty theft. She embarked on a dismal tour of the capital's workhouses and infirmaries. She surrendered herself to the elements, sleeping rough in Trafalgar Square. And finally, when she squandered her last shot at rehab, she gravitated, as so many unanchored people would, to the East End. Prostitution was her last recourse. By August 31st, 1888, she was homeless without the money to pay for a bed in a lodging house in Mead. She claimed to have earned and then drunk away the four pence fee several times over that day. At 2.30 a.m., an acquaintance encountered her, drunk and staggering in the darkness at the junction of Osborne Street and Whitechapel Road. This acquaintance could have been uh, Miss Emily Holland, with whom she had previously shared a bed at a common lodging house in Thrall Street. This would be the last time that Marianne was knowingly seen alive by anyone other than her killer. The terror started on Friday, the 31st of August, when her body was discovered. She was 42 when she was murdered. At 3.45 a.m., two men walking west along Bucks Row, now called Durwald Street, for those of you that, uh, those of our listeners that are in England, which we have quite a few, Um, saw that they thought saw what they thought might have been an abandoned uh, terrapollen or tarp lying on the footpath. Closer inspection showed that it was the body of a woman, her throat cut, pulled in blood. Only when her body was stripped in the primitive local mortuary, where the horrible incisions to Mary's name abdomen were discovered. Her intestines, uncontained by the abdominal wall, threat, uh, threatened to push through the gaps. This unusual degree of brutality rendered her murder notable, an abstract alternative to the city's run-of-the-mill domestic homicides. It is also said that her throat was severed by two deep cuts, one of which completely severed all the tissue down to the vertebrae. Her vagina had been stabbed twice. Several other incisions were inflicted on both sides of her abdomen, had also been caused by the same knife. Each of these wounds had been inflicted in a downward-thrusting manner, but in a pattern which would be repeated with unhappy frequency over the following two and a half months, no sign of the killer was to be found. Oof. 
I did have to look up and see what a tarpaulin was. Yeah, that is the actual name for a tarp. Really? I did not know that, <laughs> I so know that I name. Googled it. Uh, I was today years old and I realized that tarp had a full name. Yes. Um, it was based off of what they made it out of. We oh. don't make it out of the same stuff now. No. Um, so, it, yeah, it got short to tarp. But, yeah, that's technically what a tarp is. Yeah. The full name of the tarp. Um, yeah, we talked about... Um, sexual sadism a little bit before um this is where the sexual sadism really comes into play the penetrating of the vagina with the knife numerous times um it's where this is the reason i don't think she was raped i don't think any of them were raped the knife I, is the instrument the of that. knife is how he is getting off um Anytime that knife is penetrating the flesh in whatever way, it's the same that, thing. It's the same thing for him. It, it does nothing different. And honestly, with from my knowledge that I have um, in the short time that I um, studied behavioral analysis, um, this more than likely he's. Um, probably impotent uh, for lack of a better word he can't keep it up uh, the knife is taking the place of that because it's one thing he can control so and that's why we see the pattern of what he does to these victims it's his way of being in control yeah. <clears throat> Annie Chapman it was true to say that things had been better for Annie Chapman. Far from the rookeries of Whitechapel and Spitalfields, she had spent part of her adolescence and later part of her married life in Windsor, in the shadow of the royal castle. This may not have expressed real wealth, but it probably did go hand in hand with a certain level of economic comfort. Annie and her husband John even had their photograph taken in about 1869. The image originally identified by the researcher Neil Stubbing Sheldon in 2001 is the only one we have of any of Jack the Ripper's canonical five victims in life. A photograph was not a typically working class accoutrement. Clearly, the Chapmans were destined for better things, or at least little luxuries along the way. Annie, however, soon embarked on a familiar path, becoming a estranged from her family and increasingly intimate with drink as the 18, 1880s wore on. By 1888, she was isolated, malnourished, and suffering from chronic illnesses. She was also to be found on September 5th, 1888, brawling with another woman, Eliza Cooper, over a disputed piece of soap. Annie's face was marked in the fight. Perhaps this was a sign that her ability to defend herself was diminishing. On Saturday, September 8th, 1888, the second victim, Annie Chapman, was found. She was 47 years old when she was murdered. Her body was discovered at approximately 6 a.m. near the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, Spitalfields. Her few possessions were laid out next to her body. As in the case of Nichols, her head was almost severed by two deep cuts. Her abdomen had been cut entirely open and pulled apart. Sections of skin from the stomach lay on her left shoulder, and the right shoulder, a mass of intestines. 
Chapman's autopsy also revealed that her uterus and sections of her bladder and vagina had been removed and taken by the murderer. As before, no sign of the perpetrator. It seems like now things are getting more brutal. He's starting to get more comfortable with the idea of just doing these horrific things to, to, and to people. just not being seen. Well, and we... So, we mentioned earlier that a lot of people believe that there was a murder before the canonical five. Yes. Yes. Elizabeth Tabor. I agree with that. Oh, yeah. Every killer starts. Because... Later on in the doc, there is... Does go into what happened to Elizabeth Tabor. Well, so... For for most serial killers, this is 85% of them. Their first kill is always sloppy. They're trying to figure themselves out, trying to figure out their MO, their just their signature, things like that. Um, so with a brutal stabbing being the first thing, it's highly likely. It's more unlikely that Ann Nichols is the first one because yes it's still brutal but it's still surgical he he would not have the confidence with his first one to do this Mm -hmm. now he may not have if he didn't kill that person then he uh, there's the holy trinity of serial killers um, that it's the signs of a serial killer. It's wetting the bed at an older age. Um, it is cruelty to animals. And, um... Wow. Why can't I think of the third one? Um... Let me see. Bear with me. It's been a long time. Uh, I think it's also... I think you spoke of this, uh, Katie, in the previous episode. One of the running theories they had of there is that the first thing that they would have done is was slash the throat in this. This is probably why nobody even saw a sign or even heard this going on because this is, even though this is a poor neighborhood that nobody wants to get caught off in dark, it is still highly overcrowded. So, um, uh, fire setting. Sorry, oh. Ar- arson is the is. It's called the Holy Trinity. It's it's also called the McDonald Triad. Um, John McDonald, who was a behavioral analyst, created the McDonald Triad in 1961. And from studying people, that that's typically the sign. So it's bedwetting as an older person. Obviously, a lot of children wet the bed. But you mix that with animal cruelty... And then fire setting. And so it could have been that he started practicing on animals. Very well. And things like that. So, and that would go unseen forever, especially in a place like this. Most times back then, they didn't, parents didn't take your kid to the psychiatrist to get him see little Timmy get help. You just beat the shit out of them until they stop doing whatever you want them to stop doing. Or they get worse at it. Well, yeah. there was no psychiatrist back then. It not, was an insane asylum. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, they, they had doctors, quote-unquote, but none that... They they would talk about mental 
issues, but none of them specifically studied mental health. Yeah, they were called alienists, and they definitely did not have child psychiatry. Yeah. So, Elizabeth Stride. The boat sank rapidly, gurgling into the filthy Thames, and Elizabeth struggled madly for safety, and in the crush, she stumbled and fell, and the heel of the person in front of her brought the taste of iron to her mouth. Or so she said. The Princess Alice disaster in 1878 was genuine enough, but Elizabeth Stride's presence on board was a figment of her imagination. Sympathy, perhaps. She claimed to have lost a husband and an indeterminate number of children to the Dark River. The truth was less dramatic, but no happier. Elizabeth Stride had graduated from Gothenburg Streets to their less regulated equivalents in London, leaving behind an unfortunate early background and exchanging it for an uncertain future. After marriage in the West End, she arrived inevitably in the less salvorious East. Early attempts to prosper in its hostile commercial environment as the proprietor of a coffee shop gradually lapsed, and following her husband's death, Elizabeth was thrown back to her resourcefulness and her untrustworthy recall. So it was that she found herself in Burner Street in the first minutes of September 30th, 1888. Spotted her, and there by a clutch of well-meaning witnesses, dodging the autumn showers. But then she vanished into the shadows of Dutfield's yard. At approximately 1 a.m. in Dutfield's yard off Burner Street, now Henrique Street, on September 30th, 1888, a hawker, who um, hawkers still exist in many, many countries, basically someone who sold their wares out on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, a lot of the Asian countries are very famous for having hawkers still, and where you get a lot of the best food. Yep, and um, the Middle East as well. Yeah. Whose horse had shied away from something lying perfectly still before it and to the right. He descended from his cart to investigate. By matchlight, the face appeared. By lantern light, the wound to the throat, then the familiar outcry, the police, and the doctor. The body discovered was that of 45-year-old Elizabeth Stride. The cause of death was a clear-cut incision measuring six inches across her neck, which had severed her left carotid artery and her trachea before terminating beneath her right jaw. Elizabeth's abdomen had not been defiled in the manner of her predecessors, and immediately minds began to turn to the significance of this rapid de-escalation. Several witnesses later informed the police that they had seen Stride in the company of a man in or close to Burner Street on the evening of September 29th and in the early hours of September 30th, but each gave a differing descriptions. Some said their companion was fair, others dark. Some said that he was shabbily dressed and others well-dressed. The absence of any further mutilations of her body has led to uncertainty as to whether the Ripper committed Stride's murder or whether he was interrupted during the attack. To this day, Elizabeth's position with the canon of Ripper victims is, some feel, an insecure one. As with the other murders, the madman remained invisible, nowhere to be found. There is one version of the story which says the implications of the Ripper's failure to mutilate Elizabeth had very particular consequences would become known an hour later and less than a mile away. Um, and again, yeah, the, this one is uh, has always been up in the air 
as being part of the canonical five because it didn't exactly match. Yes, her throat was slit in the same manner, um, same victimology, 40-something-year-old 40, 40 prostitute, whatever. Um, but because of the lack of mutilation, it has been said that it's not part of the canonical five or should not be. I, I personally think he got rushed. I think it's still the Ripper, um, and he possibly got rushed off. Somebody came up near him, um, and he kind of just rushed off in the darkness before he could finish mutilating the body. I agree with that, because the hawker, if he's yelling out, selling his stuff, who says that the Ripper didn't hear that, or heard the horse-drawn carriage coming down the road, and it's like because it sounds like this one was right in the street. It wasn't in an alley. It wasn't in a backyard or anything like that. <clears throat> and so, what says that he didn't hear this and was like, "Oh fuck, I need to go." Now, one one thing that's always I've always had a question about this, and I don't know if it was ever if they ever covered. Was she also, Elizabeth Stride, was she also something of, like, an alcoholic as well? Like, everyone so far has been some kind of, some kind of dependency yes. of alcohol. It, yes. There's not a lot of information on her, because, again, most people don't believe she is part of the Canonical Five. So, not too many people did to it, but probably a good mm -hmm. assumption she may have had a... Exactly, because... I mean, everybody else is. Yeah. I mean, most people were then anyways, especially in the place that they live. Yeah, I probably, I probably drink too. And, I mean, also and with the death of her family and all of that, she's going to be bound to drink. It also seemed like she had a lot of possible mental, mental problems. This is, um, this is I tying into a theory of mine about it, but I will wait until we're done with this because... I want to see what more of the victims have in co showing common. <clears throat> Catherine Kate Eddowes. If you had been in Aldgate High Street at half past eight on the evening of September 29th, 1888, you would have seen Police Constable Lewis Robinson peering down at the figure in the shadows lying at his feet. A crowd had gathered, but nobody knew her. He took her up and propped her against the shutters of a shop. She slipped drunkenly sideways. After a few hours in the cells at Bishopsgate Station, police station, Catherine Eddowes was slightly recovered from her binge and ready to be released. She had studiously avoided telling the police her real name. She took the she she took the morals of the duty officer in good spirit. She pulled the door to the police station open and she turned left, heading away from Whitechapel. It was one in the morning on September 30th, 1888. A short distance away to the east, Duffield's yard was filled with people. Within 45 minutes, Catherine, too, would be found dead. Her injuries were a record of somebody's brutality. At 1.45 a.m., the body of Catherine Eddowes, 43 or 46 years old, was found just a few minutes walk away in an alley between Mitre Square and Duke Street, down under the St. James Passage. Mitre Square is in the city of London's jurisdiction. She was, she was discovered 45 minutes after the discovery of the body of Elizabeth Stride. 
Her throat was severed from ear to ear, and her abdomen ripped open by a long, deep, and jagged wound before her intestines had been placed over her right shoulder, with a section of intestine being completely detached and placed between her body and left arm. The left kidney and a major part of Edo's uterus had been removed, and her face had been disfigured, with her nose severed, cheeks slashed, and cuts measuring a quarter of an inch and half an inch respectively vertically incised through each of her eyelids. A triangular incision, the apex of which pointed towards Edo's eye, had also been carved upon each of her cheeks, and a section of the auricle and lobe of her right ear was later recovered from her clothing. The police surgeon who conducted the postmortem upon Edo's body stated his opinion these mutilations should have taken, quote-unquote, at least five minutes to complete. A cadre of detectives fanned out from Mitre Square, the scene of Catherine's demise, and back in the direction of Whitechapel. A trail of blood led the police to a doorway nearby that was an entrance to a tenement in Golston Street, Whitechapel, at 2.55 a.m. There they found two clues, a section of Edo's bloodied apron and a graffito. The graffito was written in chalk on the wall directly above the apron. It read, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. The graffito became known as the Golston Street Graffito. The message appeared to imply that a Jew or Jews in general were responsible for the series of murders, but it is unclear whether the graffito was written by the murderer on dropping a section uh, of apron or was merely incidental and nothing to do with the case. Such graffiti was commonplace in Whitechapel. As we stated before, Police Commissioner Sir Charles Warren feared the graffiti might spark anti-Semitic riots and ordered the writing washed away before dawn. So what could have been a valuable clue was destroyed. Had the killer stopped to chalk his prejudices neatly into his bizarre criminal narrative, did it seem possible with the police already out in vast numbers after Stride's murder earlier that morning? A local cigarette salesman named Joseph Lowend had passed by a narrow walkway to Mitre Square named Church Passage with two friends shortly before the murder. He later described seeing a fair-haired man of medium build with a shabby appearance with a woman who may have been Edo's. Lowen's companions were unable to confirm his description. Hubris was taking over, but so there followed an unlikely intermission of more than a month. The trail went cold. Was the killer in retirement, or would he return? Well, he's definitely venting some anger. If he, if Elizabeth Stride was one of his attended victims, this is you could probably probably double down on his brutality with Karen Eddowes, just so the fact Catherine. that Catherine Eddowes, um, uh, just because he probably wasn't able to vent his frustrations or anything on the fr- on Elizabeth. Well, it it's not just that. So remember, we talk about we talked about how with this sexual sadism, the 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 knife being his outlet, getting off. Yeah. Well, with this previous victim not being able to cut her open, stab her in the vagina, things like that, he's going to be sexually frustrated. Mm -hmm. So what is he going to do? The next victim, he's going to kill quickly because now he needs to have this happen or he's going to go crazy, which is why this, this is why I, again, believe it's him that the, the former one is him because this is the only one out of his regular pattern. 
he had a pattern of when he killed. He never killed twice in the same day. It was always a pattern. Everything was done the same with the cutting of the body, things like that. Why is this one now the outlier? Why is there one within 45 minutes of each other within a few miles of each no, other? No, it Not wasn't even, even. It was less than a mile Yeah, so from the previous victim. So he's going to take that frustration that of getting interrupted. He's going to go find somebody else, kill her, and take it out. That's why this is the one that is... It's the one that's the most brutal... Because he needed to get all that frustration. So the rest of them are still brutal, but this is the one that was the most brutal with the cuts on the face, uh, things like that. It oh. is it is definitely the... It, it is probably one of the worst. Yes, the other ones had some, some other things, but he never went as in-depth with the mutilation to the face. Cutting off the nose, cutting off parts of the ear, the markings on the eyes, double markings, because not only did he cut the eye where the eyelids were, then he's cutting basically triangles pointing to the eyes, um, no. and all of that stuff. So this is that's all this is. This is just sexual frustration. Now, what do we feel about the graffiti? I personally feel it's coincidence. This is my opinion because everything about it is like Kate said, quick, surgical, lethal. He is. I find it very. Un, I find it very unlikely he would <clears throat> risk being caught when he already almost got caught that same night. If we're to believe Elizabeth Stride is part of his his mo, that he would he would do this to Edo's, and then he would just stop, and then graffiti a fairly, I mean, you read that, you don't just, that doesn't, that statement doesn't just roll off your tongue, it's not something you can just write without thinking, you have to, you almost have to kind of stop and think about how you're going to write it out, because A, you're spelling Jews in a different way, it's kind of a long sentence, and you kind of like the Jews on the people who are the men who will not be blamed for nothing. It's like, okay, hold on, let me read that again. It doesn't seem like something that he would um, just stop after he just committed this this brutal killing to write. Now, the letters, I can see him doing that because he's in his lair, his home, wherever he's living. He can just sit down and write and then mail it. There's no risk to him. I don't, I don't think he ever wrote any letters. Um, I don't. I don't think he ever wrote anything. So, here's the thing. So you have different kinds of serial killers. Um, you have Jack the Ripper, who, for all intents and purposes, does not want to be caught. Does not want his name out there. He's just doing this to get off. Mm-hmm. Where you have BTK, which we're gonna do on. Um, I remember when he got caught. I remember I too. making the news. I was younger, but it it was huge because he was an idiot. Yeah, I thought how, I thought how stupid he was too. He so do you remember how he got caught? Oh, so I don't remember the case or anything. It was actually until not until like maybe a year or two ago when I started getting interested in serial killers and stuff. 
um, that I looked up BTK and I listened to a random podcast about it that I found out how he was caught. So I thought it was hilariously I, stupid. We're not going to talk about it because we're going to be doing BTK soon. Um, but you have people like BTK who want to want their name out there. So Jack the Ripper is not that kind of person. Otherwise, we'd probably have more information on him. Mm. Um, so, number one, I don't think he wrote any letters at all. I think that's just other people just being assholes, or it's the news outlets trying to spin up stories and things like that. I also don't think that the graffiti's him is either. Um, again, this is all sexual for him. What what does it do to point the finger at Jews for him? It doesn't do anything. They don't know who he is. I could see if they start flinging out names, if the news was like, oh yeah, we think it's this person. We think it's this person. But they didn't do that. They have no suspects. So there's it makes no sense for him to point the finger a different direction when there is no finger being pointed at all. He's, he's essentially a ghost in this whole he thing. I mean, there were names being thrown into the media, but that was just it. They were being thrown in there. There weren't any, like, real suspects until... Well, no, they, they weren't throwing... But they weren't throwing suspect names. They, they were throwing, like, moniker names, but they the media never called anybody out, like, hey, the police have this person as a suspect. It was all just monikers. It was Leather Apron. It was the Whitechapel Murderer. Blah, 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 blah. So, but it makes... It would make no sense to point a finger in a different direction if the finger's not pointed at all. Yeah, and no, I agree. And you also have to think, if this... If that coroner was correct, and it would only take five minutes for all of that mutilation, A, all of the City of London police are probably out and about because they just had a brutal murder. Mm-hmm. Now, and because it was so close to Whitechapel, you had H Division all out. So, he didn't get caught in those five minutes. But taking that time to actually write that message and put an apron that belonged to the victim below it? Yeah. I think that apron... He probably took it with him. It fell because he was trying to rush out of there. Or he, or, just, or he just discarded it. Like, yeah, I don't need this. Yeah, I mean, my theory is, because again, remember, she has a lot of body parts missing from her. Is that part of the apron is what's used. He used parts of the apron to wrap up the parts. And as he's leaving, parts of the apron drop out. And he kind of regathers it and puts it away. Mm-hmm. That um, could be. So, because otherwise, there's no sense for that to be under there. But yeah, I don't. I don't think that's him. I think it's. I think it's just purely uh, as coincidence. Mu- as much as I don't believe in coincidence, um, especially in law enforcement, coincidence isn't a huge thing. Usually, everything has a reason. But if we could have studied the graffiti more then we could have made the definitive, like, hey, you can look at how old this chalk is, how long has this been here, 
blah, blah, blah. But no, we erased it, so we don't know. So yes, we chalk it up to coincidence now. But I personally, myself, yeah, I personally, myself, do not believe in coincidence when it comes to an investigation. And remember, in an investigation, details matter. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Reacher. You're welcome. We're about the the same size. Hmm? I'm the same size as as Alan Rich, then. I was about to say, not actual Reacher. Alan Richardson and I are the same size. So, um, all right, Mary Jane Kelly. Of all the Ripper's victims, Mary Jane Kelly is the most enigmatic. Her death brought her to the notice of posterity, but her backstory remains shadowy and out of reach. She herself, having fallen into a relationship with a fish market porter named Joseph Barnett, provided a detailed history full of adventure and sadness. Some aspects of her described past now appear to be checked out, but still a comprehensive and verifiable overview of her background continues to elude researchers. Mary Jeanette Kelly was the youngest of the women murders. She was just 25 and an attractive girl. The Ripper struck again on November 9th, 1888. The extensively mutilated and disemboweled body of Mary Jane Kelly was discovered lying on her bed in the single room where she lived at 13 Miller's Court off Dorset Street, Spittle Fields at 10.45 a.m. on Friday, November 9th, 1888. She was found in her room by a rent collector who said, I shall be haunted by this for the rest of my life. Her face had been hacked beyond all recognition, with her throat severed down to the spine and the abdomen almost emptied of all its organs. Her nose and breasts were cut off and dumped on a table. Her entrails were draped over a picture frame. Her uterus, kidneys, and one breast had been placed beneath her head and other viscera from her body placed beside her foot. Sections of her abdomen and thighs upon a bedside table. The body had been skinned and gutted and her heart was missing from the crime scene. Multiple ashes found within the fireplace at 13 Miller's Court suggested Kelly's murderer had burned several combustible items to illuminate the single room as he mutilated her body. A recent fire had been severe enough to melt the solder between a kettle and its spout, which had fallen into the grate of the fireplace. The photograph of Mary Jane's corpse on her bed, divested from everything which made her human, is the last hideous memento of Jack the Ripper's murderous fugue. In a break with his previous habits, the Ripper ventured inside to kill, and satisfied himself that he was unlikely to be interrupted that night. Barnett had indeed moved out of the squalid room in Miller's Court, which he had shared with Mary Jane a few weeks earlier, insulted by her return to regular prostitution, leaving her alone. Living upstairs, Elizabeth Prater heard a cry of murder at about four in the morning of November 9, 1888, but she did nothing about it. Mary Jane's lifeless body was discovered shortly before 11. One senior police officer reviewing the case later concluded that the amateur scene in Miller's court had tipped the mind of its creator, perhaps. It is certainly true to say that nothing on a comparable scale happened again. Jack the Ripper's identity died on the blanched lips of Mary Jane Kelly. Now, I mean, we all, everyone's often said that is Elizabeth Stride the canonical one of the canonical five? To me, there's more. I'm not saying that I agree with it, but I'm saying there's probably more of a case to say that Mary Jane 
Kelly was not a victim of the Ripper than Elizabeth Stride, simply because there was so many more deviations from his M.O. with this one than the other ones. Or it could be said this is how his true M.O. would really play See. out because he had the safety of indoors, whereas on the streets there's just too much risk of him getting caught if he... I guess when really, I mean, he's already psycho, but really full bore psycho. See, and that's my thought is this is the true MO, this is the true signature because he knew he was never going to be interrupted. He was inside in an enclosed room. Nobody, if you notice, she heard screams, which means he didn't cover her mouth. He. He took his time with her, and if he would have had time with the other victims, we probably would have seen the same things. If they had a place to live, this is the only one that had an actual place to live. The rest were... Homeless. They were homeless, they were prostitutes, they were squatting in other places. So, this is this is the only one that had a place to live. If the rest did, I guarantee you that they would have all been this brutal. I believe it. I 100% believe it. Because the only deviation from the MO, his M.O. is it's inside a building. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, I mean, the organs were removed, the everything was desecrated, and was it was very brutal. Um, the cuts in the neck, all, all of that, it's, it's all the same, just to... The, a higher degree. Yeah, that's where I always I've seen it where people thought, oh, it's too brutal. It's it smacks of, of personal because it is so brutal. I mean, um, technically, it is all personal to him. Well, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, to him, sexual. It would, yeah, it and would be there very is a theory that we will get into <clears throat> next episode that it, would, it could have possibly been her boyfriend <clears throat> or her ex-boyfriend. Um. So we are going to conclude with other possible victims. Emma Elizabeth Smith was robbed and sexually assaulted on Osborne Street, Whitechapel, at approximately 1.30 a.m. on April 3rd, 1888. She had been bludgeoned about the face and received a cut to her ear. A blunt object was also inserted into her vagina, rupturing her peritoneum. She developed uh, peritonitis and died the following day at a London hospital. Smith stated that she had been attacked by two or three men, one of who she described as a teenager. This attack was linked to later murders by the press, but most authors attribute Smith's murder to general East End gang violence unrelated to the Ripper's case. I agree. Yeah. I yes. do not think this is the Ripper. The only thing that is similar is the insertion to the vagina, but it was done with a blunt object, not a sharp, then she's saying it's two or three men. East, Kate, East End London gangs would often target prostitutes to force them to work for them, or just simply rob them. Well, the thing is, with this one, it's the press put all the Whitechapel murders in and around that time on Jack the Ripper. It didn't matter if the MO was matched up or anything. This one, I personally don't think he did, just because she said it was most likely gang. Yeah, um, listen, we've seen the Newsies, we've seen... I've never seen the Newsies. 
We'll have to watch the Newsies. I've never seen the Newsies either. It's set in this time. Um, really good. We'll, we'll watch the Newsies. It's a musical. Um, but uh, we, we've we seen uh, West Side Story and all of that. Just, you've never seen West Side Story? Jesus what? Christ. Sorry. Wow, there's a wow. Fir- that, that's the first movie I've seen without it. That Anyways, I'm just gonna stop. Men- uh, fine, Gangs of Fucking New York. I know you've seen Gangs of New York. Yes, I own the movie. Okay, there you go. <laughs> I'm sorry. Jesus Christ. Well, there goes my my statement. Anyways, <laughs> Martha Tabram was murdered on a staircase landing in George Yard Whitechapel on August 7th, 1888. She had suffered 39 stab wounds to her throat, lungs, heart, liver, spleen, stomach, and abdomen, with additional knife wounds inflicted to her breast and vagina. All but one of Tabram's wounds had been inflicted by a right-handed individual. Tabram had not been raped. Okay, so, remember I said, I believe that there was a first victim. I believe Tabram is the first victim. Everything fits. Mm-hmm. Everything fits. Right-handed individual. We already know Jack the Ripper is right-handed because the throats were cut from left to right, which means he has to be right-handed. The stab wounds to the body, that is just, okay, I want to get this done quickly, so I'm going to stab her this many times. You're also getting off for the first time this way, so he's going to stab more because he does not... It, he's just so excited. And then there is the wounds inflicted to the vagina. You've already stabbed her all the way here. There's no reason to stab her in the vagina unless it's sexual. Yep. So that's why I think this is the first victim. And then he realized this is, I don't need to get off. I don't need this much to get off. This is also brutal, too brutal. Like, considering what he's done, this is still brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, this also takes up too much time to stab 39 times. Um, so that's why I think Martha Tabram is the very first victim. I Like, through the research and stuff, just researching about it, I believe Martha Tabram also is the first victim because it fits. You're always going to not be sure of yourself on the first victim. Yeah. The savagery of the Tabor murder, the lack of obvious motive, and the closeness of the location and date to the later canonical Ripper murders led police to link this murder to those murders because although Tabor had been repeatedly stabbed, she had not suffered any slash wounds to her throat or abdomen. Many experts do do not connect Tabram's murder with the later murders because of the difference in the wound pattern. Um, Alice McKenzie was murdered shortly after midnight on July 17, 1889 in Castle Alley, Whitechapel. She had suffered two stab wounds to her neck and her left carotid artery had been severed. Several minor bruises and cuts were found on her body, which also bore a seven-inch long superficial wound extending from her left breast to her navel. One of the examining pathologists, Thomas Bond, believed this to be a Ripper murder, though his colleague, George Baxter Phillips, who had examined the bodies of three pre- previous victims, disagreed. Opinions among writers 
are also divided between those who suspect McKenzie's murder copied the modus operandi of Jack the Ripper to deflect suspicion from himself and those who ascribe this murder to Jack the Ripper. Now, do not think this is Jack the Ripper. The two stab wounds to the neck don't make sense to him. Again, this is after. Um, this is... Actually, it's before Martha Tabram. No, this was... This is after. This is after. It's the year after. Oh, 1889. So it's almost um, exactly a year yeah, after. I, I don't... I think this would be a reversion back to previous brutality. Um, I, I don't... I don't think this is him. The... Why would he go from the quick, clean slashes, gutting the body, back to stabbing her in the neck severing the carotid artery. Remember, it says the left carotid artery had been severed. It did not say she was cut all the way through. So it, it would have just been a bleed out. Um, and then a seven inch long wound from her left breast to her navel. So that's a diagonal cut. It makes it impossible. It would make it almost impossible to get anything out of that body to do with what he needed. That's why he did a clean cut down the center. This all this strikes me as a copycat. This yeah. is somebody mm-hmm. who finally got the courage to do it, but once it was go time, he didn't have the courage or the stomach to go through with the thing. He didn't cut her throat all the way. When he went to gut her, he was probably like, "Oh God!" And he only, as they said, there was only a superficial wound across her abdomen, not enough to do anything really. So. Probably this was just some sicko who thought he could be the next Jack the Ripper or Emmy or whatever. It doesn't matter. He, yeah. This strikes me as a copycat. Yeah. Yep. Somebody who tried to actually be Jack and he just didn't have the courage or the fortitude to be Jack. Yeah. At 2.15 a.m. on February 13th, 1891, PC Ernest Thompson discovered a 25-year-old prostitute named Frances Coyles laying beneath a railway arch at Shallow Gardens White Chapel. Her throat had been deeply cut, but her body was not mutilated, leading some to believe Thompson had disturbed her assailant. Uh, Coles was still alive, although she died before medical help could arrive. A 53-year-old stoker, uh, which is a person that feeds fuel to a furnace, uh, James Thomas Sadler had earlier been seen drinking with Coles, and the two were known to have argued approximately three hours before her death. Sadler was arrested by the police and charged with her murder. He was briefly thought to be the Ripper, but was later discharged from court for lack of evidence on March 3rd, 1891. Sounds almost like, not to make light of murder, but sounds like just an ordinary murder. Yeah. Maybe I mean, he did... happened a lot. I mean, he. It, it's quite possible PC, PC Thompson had interrupted the murder, but that doesn't necessarily mean this was Jack the Ripper. Yeah, I mean... And especially because the murders happened in 1888. This happened in 1891. There should have been more murder. Like, if this was the case. Not necessarily. So, we there's been a number of serial killers that have taken a break, quote-unquote. And it's for various reasons. They've either been arrested. They got sick. They went out of town, they just got their fill of what they needed for that time, and then they picked it back up later. Um, and a lot of people believe, that's why, and I'm going to say this, 
and I don't believe that this is true, but one of the speculations is that, and was huge for a long time until people lumped it, was that Jack the Ripper was the same as the Zodiac Killer. Um, that w- that was a theory for a while. Um, the only problem with that is Jack would have been a hundred years old yeah. um, as the Zodiac Killer. Which, again, we are doing the Zodiac Killer because as bad as it is to say, that's probably my favorite of the unsolved serial killers. Jack the Ripper, yes, is brutal, but Zodiac was a little more close to home, I guess you could say. Mm. Um, well, it's, it's in America. time and space. Yeah, it's in America. And, uh, and it, it wasn't across the pond. Yeah, and yeah. it was more modern for us. Um, and growing up, I in a law enforcement family, everybody studied because there was all the cryptography and everything for, for that one that... Uh, when you come from a law enforcement family like I do, that's your pastime is doing cryptography. Oh. Um, In but, my pastime, I got to talk about uh, medical stuff. But yeah, so um, I this I don't believe that this was him. Anyways, yes, he could have taken a break, but I think I think he died. To be honest, I think I, that's why the killer stopped. He, he probably died of a disease that was very common then. He probably was more than likely he was homeless himself, and which was very common. And when you have eighty thousand people in one place, sickness creeps up on you very quickly. Oh yeah, kills you very quickly with no medical attention. Plus, he's not going to go get medical attention because. He's a fucking serial killer. So why is he going to expose himself to anything? Or he probably couldn't afford it. Um, so I I think, honestly, I think by this time in 1891, he's already dead. I think he's already dead, but I also think he, mu- he might have been institutionalized. Oh, that's very also a very distinct possibility. <sighs> so in addition to the 11 Whitechapel murders, commentators have linked other attacks to the Ripper. In the case of quote-unquote Fairy Fay was a nickname given to an unidentified woman whose body was allegedly found in a doorway close to Commercial Road on December 26, 1887. After a stake had been thrust through her abdomen, but there were no recorded murders in Whitechapel at or around Christmas 1887. Fairy Fay seems to have been created through a confused press report of the murder of Emma Elizabeth Smith, who had a stick or blunt object shoved into her vagina. Most others agree that the victim, Fairy Faye, never existed. Very common, especially Mm -hmm. back then. Um, A 38-year-old widow named Annie Millwood was admitted to Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary with numerous stab wounds to her legs and lower torso on February 25, 1888. Informing the staff, she had been attacked with a clasped knife by an unknown man. She was later discharged, but died from apparently natural causes on March 31st. Millwood was later postulated to the Ripper's first victim, although his attack cannot be definitively definitively linked to the perpetrator. This is not his first victim. Um, Another suspect's uh, pre-canonical victim was a young dressmaker named Ada Wilson who reportedly survived being stabbed twice in the neck with a clasp knife upon the doorstep of her home in Bow 
in March 28, 1888, by a man who had demanded money from her. This just sounds like a particularly brutal mugger. Doesn't yeah. sound like Jack. Jack. <clears throat> I mean, if Jack said anything to its victims, I mean, we, we have no we don't idea. Know. We don't know. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh, now this, this, and plus he survived. Yeah. Plus, also, this is a dressmaker. I'm, I'm going to just assume that this is not some prostitute no. streetwalker. Not, not as a dressmaker, she'd be making some money. So, and everybody here seems to be um, homeless. Alcoholic, prostitute. prostitute. It doesn't say Ada Wilson's age, right? It never said how old she was. No, no. Age. But honestly, I don't think age had anything to do with it. Mm, it typically does, though. So here's the thing. So we we have one victim that's the outlier at 25 to 27 years old. Yeah. But typically, when a, a killer, uh, most serial killers have a specified victim. They either look the same, or they're about the same age. Um, you'll you see a lot where some serial killers like the young blonde females, so they will always target because it reminds them of their mother or something like that. Yeah. If we look at most of his victims, they were in their forties, mid to late forties. Correct. Yeah. So probably. His same age. Or, possibly, if he was younger, his mother's age. That's possible. And unfortunately, without more evidence to do a more definitive workup on him, we'll never know if that's part of his M.O. But, from what we can tell, there was one outlier, which is the 20-year-old, the 20-something-year-old, um, which could have just been a crime of opportunity. That, or... She saw something she wasn't supposed to. Could be. I I tend to think if she's a regular prostitute, um, she probably. I I tend to agree with Kate. It was probably a attack. It was probably an opportunity. He probably just didn't see somebody who matched his normal one. It was just like "Eh, close enough. Yeah, close enough. Yeah. So. A further possible victim, 40-year-old Annie Farmer, resided at the same lodging house as Martha Tabram and reported an attack on November 21st, 1888. She had received a superficial cut to her throat. Although an unknown man with blood on his mouth and hands had run out of the lodging house shouting, look at what she has done. Before two eyewitnesses heard Farmer scream, her wound was light and possibly self-inflicted. So... Suicide. Attempted suicide. It's a superficial cut, so which she is going to cut this way, and it's going to be light because it's really hard, especially for her to push down that heavy as Jack did. Um, And what was what probably, honestly, what probably happened is she was a prostitute. This guy is there with her. She's getting a little freaky deaky, and she likes the blood, and probably cut herself because that is a thing. Yeah. Um. Probably cut herself, and this guy said, "What nope. the fuck? I'm out of here," and dipped. So that's probably what happened. She was getting a little too freaky deaky. Um. 
On December 29, 1888, the body of a seven-year-old boy named John Gill was found in a stable block in Manningbam, Bradford. Gill had been missing since December 27th. His legs had been severed, his abdomen opened, his intestines partially drawn out, and his heart and one ear removed. Similarities with the Ripper murders led led to press speculation that the Ripper had killed him. The boy's employer, 23-year-old milkman William Barrett, was twice arrested for the murder, but was released due to insufficient evidence. No one was ever prosecuted. This is not Jack. I'll tell you right now. No. It's a seven-year-old The victimology is complete opposite. He would he would have to be going through some sort of mental break to be able to do this. He's he never openly severed limbs. And he no, never targeted I, men or boys or anything. I honestly think this was someone that probably took inspiration from Jack the Ripper. There's also during this time there was like torsos and stuff and severed limbs and that being found in the area. I think this dude, whoever killed this child, literally was taking inspiration from both those cases that were happening at the same time. So there's another one that strikes me as this that while I do believe obviously this boy probably was murdered, um, one thing that is never really it, it's mentioned but it's not often talked, um, body snatching. So back in this day and age, in the Victorian era, um, autopsies and anatomy classes were very backwards. And oftentimes, medical students, medical professors would often pay um, unsavored people to bring them dead bodies. Now, again, like I said, I think this poor boy probably was murdered. But I believe that his body, from everything a lot his thing, his legs are severed, his abdomen open, the intestines partially drawn out, his heart and ear removed. I'm thinking probably someone found this poor boy who died or was murdered, and then decided to sell his body, sell sell his body to a student or students, and they just decided to brush up on anatomy. Yeah. Because as you said, this is not in Jack the Ripper's wheelhouse of severing limbs. But if I'm an eager student of medicine trying to learn as much as I can, you know, this sounds like, unfortunately, this poor, this poor child was used as a test, test prop, which um, is horrible. Speak, speaking of torsos, that, that gives me... We're, we'll be doing another uh, episode on some famous torsos, mm-hmm. the Cleveland Torso Murders. That featured a very famous lawman. Yes, but was never caught. Nope. Um, that's, an- that's another one that I love. Um, all right, so... Carrie Brown, nicknamed Shakespeare, reportedly for a habit of quoting Shakespeare's sonnets, I would kill her too, was strangled with clothing then mutilated with a knife on April 24th, 1891 in New York City. Her body was found with a large tear through her groin area and superficial cuts on her legs and back. No organs were removed or unintentionally dislodged. At the time, the murder was compared to those in Whitechapel, though the Metropolitan Police eventually ruled out any connection. Jack the Ripper did not just snuff out life with a knife. He mutilated and disemboweled women, removing organs and such as kidneys and uteruses, and his crime seemed to portray an <coughs> abhorrence for the entire female gender. Mm. Now, this is something after reviewing all the victims of Canonical Five. 
This is something that if the Metropolitan Police or H Division or whoever the various detectives did this, if they didn't try this, I would honestly, I would honestly call their credentials in. Because everybody, one of them, has one trait or something in common that I think that they, if they did, they dismissed it. It's alcohol. Every one of these women is some kind of an alcoholic to one degree or another. Bartender. Two, two of them were seen, were last seen coming from a pub. So, my theory is, is that Jack the Ripper probably found these women around, either stumbling out of the pub or he was in the pub watching for the right one to go out and he got them. So, I cannot, I, I, if they didn't do this, like, stake out every pub, alehouse, and wherever there's alcohol, cheap alcohol where these homeless women and prostitutes bought it, and just stake out, and kind of like, just kind of like, follow the ones who leave and see if someone follows them, I would, I bet you any money Jack was hanging out in these pubs, going after them, because everything strikes of a predator hunting his prey quickly goes in, these women were probably drunk, he goes in, he slashes his throat. Not only are they inebriated, so they can't really fight back, their their throats are cut, so there's no cry for help. So that that's how he's able to, no one hears it. Well, I'll do you one better. I don't think he's a patron. I think he would be a bartender. So, if you look at all, the Canonical Five, what's another thing they all have in common? Horrible backstories. Mm-hmm. That life. Who is the one person you tell all your troubles to? The bartender. Besides a priest. Which I doubt these women were religious. No, they were prostitutes. Um, they're they're going to tell everything to the bartender. Or the bartender will at least hear that. So, what's to say that this is not a bartender or a barback or something like that that is following them out of the bar, knows how drunk they are, is probably feeding them more alcohol. Like, here, this one's on the house, because how are they so drunk with no money? It can, like, I, I don't alcohol think... Alcohol was cheap, but we, we already cheap. saw that one of the victims is burning through their money Seems. as quick as they get it. So how are they getting so drunk with so little money? Like, I, I sincerely doubt any, any bar or pub or whatever is going to run these ladies a tab. Not unless they have other intentions. But, again, that goes to theories, So, which we'll get into later. Um, but yeah, so that is the Canonical Five. We have one more part. One or two. Depending on the writing. Um, at least one more part next week to release for this one and then we'll delve into some more light-hearted stuff. <laughs> we'll take a take a little break from this and get into some more light-hearted stuff. But um but yeah, so thank you for visiting the Scarlet Tavern. Remember to turn in your glasses, push in your seat, and as always, tip the bard. Good night everybody. Good night. Good night.